I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. Hey, and welcome back to the podcast. You have clicked on a very, very special episode because we are speaking to Kira Rickard, who's one of our friends. She's a psychologist. She's a big player in the social justice scene. And she's also 37 and she's facing a terminal illness. We spoke to her back in July 2020. She's our first repeat guest on the show. And a lot more has happened since then. So without further ado, here is the conversation. Yes, so it's been a very hectic two years since we spoke last. Um, And I just realised about 15 minutes ago that today is the year to a day where I was in hospital in Hobart. Um, A few days before, I'd been told that I wasn't making it out alive this time. And a year to the day ago, I thought, oh, gosh, maybe there's some hope I might just live through this. And um, now a year on. I'm out of hospital. I'm still here despite, you know, all expectations. I I genuinely thought I was going to die that time too, Um, as did, you know, my treatment team, my family, the palliative care team was around. They were giving me morphine, you know, all of that stuff. Um, Yeah, and and here I am a year on reflecting on what a, a huge couple of years it's been for me and, um, how delighted I am that I'm here talking to you after everything. And, um, yeah, today I was able to get up. I was able to do some shopping, um, got some art supplies because I quite like to paint, um, had a long phone call with a friend, and now I'm doing a podcast. And, you know, just Six or eight months ago, I was so weak still after nearly dying that I couldn't even roll over. So I've come a very long way. That's just incredible. So you came so close to seeing your own death multiple times. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 So what happened last year is I know that I've talked about metastatic breast cancer, but I also have an immune condition called Evans syndrome. Um, And in Evans syndrome, the immune system attacks the blood, which is quite necessary for living. Uh, So last year I had a relapse of that. Um, I was also diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is another cancer. It's, It's a bone marrow cancer and it's another terminal illness. Um, And then in hospital, I had a huge range of complications, um, including what they thought was sepsis, um, multiple organ failure, um, what we think was some sort of cytokine storm where my immune system just started attacking everything in my body. And, um, you know, my my doctors would do their their rounds and they'd say, do you have any questions? And I'd say, well, yes, I have lots of questions, but we know there's no answers because no one um, knew why this was happening to me. Um, They didn't know why, which meant, of course, we didn't really know how to to treat what was going on. Um, We didn't know what would fix it. (laughs) Um, And 
you know, and it was really, really quite, um, quite a horrific experience. Um, you know, the sense I've made of it is that it was mostly driven by what was happening with my immune system. Um, and then I got out of hospital two weeks to the day after the, they told me I was going to die. I managed to make this miraculous turnaround um, against all, all expectations and against all odds and managed to discharge from hospital and then move into state. I, I was living in Tasmania when we spoke last. Now I'm in South Australia. I got another couple of weeks before ending up back in hospital with more complications and I was in for a few months and have had to learn how to walk from there so it's been it's been a, a big year it's uh it's really it's quite quite frightening but quite warming that you're you're still here and you're able to uh, communicate to us um, a little bit of that story um I suppose when when you're in that space where you're sort of plunging towards that that idea that you, you know you could no longer be here um I wonder if you can um, you know, tell the listeners and, and 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 talk to us about what that emotionally felt for you. What 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 was yeah. was there? Yeah, yeah, I can. So physically, it felt like torture. Um, you know, I wasn't in much of, of what we'd consider pain, but my breathing was so bad that I was uh, on high flow oxygen and I kept having panic attacks because I couldn't breathe, which is terrifying. Um, you know, I couldn't stop vomiting. I couldn't stop diarrhea. Well, I'm helpless in a hospital bed. Um, so I felt very helpless and distressed because the symptoms I were experiencing were just horrific um you know I remember at the time I, I could barely speak because I couldn't breathe right um but I remember gasping out to my mum um that if we had legal voluntary assisted dying and I knew that there was no hope at all that I would be any better than what I was at the time that I'd be accessing that because life was genuinely torture at the time it was really really awful and um difficult and and traumatizing um you know i i still had i still had this little thread of hope though um it wasn't a it wasn't a big thread of hope it wasn't me thinking oh no i'll be okay the doctors are wrong it wasn't like that it was it was just a little thread of well you know maybe i'll pull through i don't know you know, it might be my time. And, and I, I had acceptance that that I probably wouldn't survive at the same time. So there was there, there was that balance of acceptance and then this tiny little thread of hope, um, just sort of, you know, a single star shining in the darkness millions of miles away. Um, and, you know, emotionally, despite my distress, despite the fact that it felt like torture, I, I also found myself reflecting on, on all the things that I've done in my life and actually feeling quite satisfied and going, well, you know, if this is my time, it's my time. And I've done so many things in my life that have been really important to me that have had meaning. I've really embraced living. And so there was also that kind of view of, well, you know, gosh, if I do go, at least I've lived first. Um, 
And, you know, I'm thinking about what would people say at my funeral and gosh, people would have a lot of stories about me and most of them would be pretty positive. So it it was quite lovely to to reflect on that. Um, And at at the same time, my my thinking um, was very sort of fragmented and things were a bit trippy because of course I was on a whole lot of drugs at the time um you know I had multiple lines going in and machines attached everywhere um and you know being that sick and being on the medications I was on of course it affects thinking it affects um physical sensations cognition so I also had a few sort of kind of slightly odd feeling hallucinations where I was hallucinating different lights um you know some lights felt really threatening some lights felt really bright and welcoming um so that was quite interesting to notice um and also I'd sort of have a thought and then time would pass and then I'd have another another thought it's sort of things things didn't it didn't feel like I was entirely in my body when I was in that state. Um, and it actually took quite quite a while afterwards for me to, um, after being so unwell, to, to feel as though I was in my body again, which was also really interesting to notice at the time. Wow. What, what, was, the, um, what was your relationship like with time, you know, while you were in hospital for so many <sighs> months on end? What was... oh gosh mm, when I when I was really sick time both stood still and moved very quickly it it, it felt like I was in um you know in in the eye of the cyclone really um it, it was hard to know up from down and in terms of time passing um even though at the same time you know I all of my friends and family were all really, really worried and all wanting to see me. So I had this sort of very odd, distorted sense of time. Whilst at the same time, we were literally booking people in with calendars because with COVID restrictions, I could only have one visitor at a time and people wanted to be able to see me, um, even though I couldn't always respond very much. Um, so it was really interesting. And then when I was better, so my second admission um, when I, I'd come to Adelaide, you know, in my wheelchair um, and then, you know, hurt my knees and had medication side effects and then had sepsis again um, and, you know, a knee surgery and all sorts of things. Um, that admission, I didn't feel as though my life was in danger. I was quite sick, but it, it didn't have that same death is coming for me feeling. Um, and my relationship with time then was quite different. Um, at the time, COVID lockdowns were very, um, you know, very significant. So there were periods where I wasn't allowed a single visitor and I'd been in hospital for six months <laughs> at this point almost. Um, and so the time, oh gosh, I the, the rhythm of time in hospital for me was set by when nurses would come to do observations. Um, when I was on the rehabilitation ward, it was when I'd have my morning rehabilitation exercises where I'd be, you know, trying and failing to stand, um, you know, and as though I was, you know, running 50 kilometres. Um, and it, it was set by, you know, when, when would meals arrive? Um, and time just, it dragged. It, it felt like I was in there for years because I I didn't see 
people really except for the nurses and you know they they talk and um, I had a wonderful nursing team and lovely doctors um, but of course I didn't have all my usual connections um, and so my only way of reaching out to the world was through my phone um, you know when, when people criticize social media I'm like well you've been where I've been if, if you think it's all bad guys <laughs> because for me that was a lifeline yeah yeah and I think that's probably how we got to find you even is through your um amazing posts on social media that it's such a change to the the normal feed that you get um of just like people trying to show how amazing their lives are you you're basically like in every way doing the opposite of of that and showing like the rawest of you know your emotions and fears and I think that's yeah that's how so many people found you and got got attached to your posts and um yeah so thank you for doing that I mean yeah it's been amazing to just see especially for me I think to be seeing in your posts like the amount of um looking forward to something and 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 having something that's you know that's good coming up for you and then all of those hopes just getting dashed and then there's a disappointment and then like that same like up and then another real real down and then even very further down and then even further down and I guess I, yeah like I just I don't know how someone deals with that like what yeah. how did you approach you know just constant dashing Mm-hmm. with uh, the same way that I approached getting my cancer diagnosis just with the acceptance that it was completely out of my control um for me it, it's as it's as simple and as difficult as that it's just accepting that I can't control when I'm going to have a relapse um and you know well interestingly uh, people talk about living with cancer and, and particularly, you know, metastatic cancer. So terminal, terminal cancers is really difficult and it is, but for me, living with Evan syndrome has actually been far more challenging in many ways because with, with my cancers, I get a bit of notice that things are going downhill. Like, you know, it might not be a lot of notice, but, you know, it shows up in, in, in blood tests. They can see, oh, okay, you know, the cancer's spreading some more, treatments are failing or you know, things like that. You, you get some notice when things are getting bad. With Evan syndrome, this last set of admissions um, started with me being at work, having just supported my, my team through a, a really big project. We were just all patting ourselves on the back and feeling really good about what we'd done. And I got a call from my hematologist oncologist saying, Kira, your latest blood tests are showing that your panzitopenic, I need to admit you today, you need to leave work. And oh yeah, and so my, my admissions for Evans syndrome happens so quickly and it shows up in my blood test before I'm sick and then I get admitted. And then within, you know, a day or two, I'm fighting for my life. And it, it's just that sudden. There's <laughs> like, no time to like emotionally prepare at all. Like you're just, yeah. 
no, nah, oh. it's it's just this is what's happening. You might be dying again. Come on in. And that's happened over and over again. Like I remember when I was, I, I'm not working clinically anymore as a psychologist because I, I don't feel I'm reliable enough to be the stable uh, figure in people's lives that, that I'd like to be. But I, I still work in the sector, um, doing more policy and, and education and supporting people to do the work. Um, and I remember during relapses sometimes having to literally be in the car, driving to hospital, calling clients and saying, hey, I'm really sorry, I have to cancel. And I don't know when I'll be able to reschedule you because I, I've had a, a flare up of my health problems. Yeah, it's amazing. Like what were their reactions like? Did it flip where they became like the caregiver and you became... <laughs> not not really like when I was still working with my health issues I really thought about how to navigate that in a way that was ethical and fair to the people I supported and and to me as well I had a lot of supervision I had therapy to talk about it too Um, I talked about it with my team at work as well and what I arrived at is that you know illness and death is just part of life. Um, It would be very paternalistic to pretend that the amazing people we work with somehow can't be, be, can't see evidence that, that that's just the case when it is. Um, And, and for me personally, it always felt unfair that, um, I'd have people I I supported who'd be telling me, you know, their deepest, darkest secrets, their greatest fears, the most horrible things of their life. Um, It felt unfair for me not to share that, um, you know, that that I've got some health problems, that sometimes I realise my body tries to kill me. And um, particularly given that I've worked with people who've often been abandoned multiple times in their lives, um, I didn't want um, me disappearing you know, off the hospital to to not to not have an explanation for them. They needed to know that it was because I was sick, not because I'd stopped caring about them or caring about the work. Um, so I tell people, you know, carefully, appropriately. I, I wouldn't, you know, certainly I wouldn't seek for that flipping roles for them to be the caregiver or anything like that. Um, you know, depending on, on the person, I might let them know a diagnosis. I might just laugh and say, oh, you know, just say, you know, got some immune issues. Sometimes my body tries to kill me, but, you know, she'll be right. <laughs> I go to hospital when I need to. You don't need to worry. I get great care. Um, because when I when I, I did completely fall over and, and had to hand over my whole caseload, they all knew I had some health problems. Um and they were all accepting of that because for me, part of informed consent as well, if there's someone with a higher risk of just disappearing, I actually feel that clients have the right to know and to take that into account in their decision-making about whether they want to work with me. Um, and I never had anyone say, say, no, I don't. No, that's that's too scary. Um, you know, I only had clients say, oh, you know, that that's really that's really rough. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for letting me know. Um, and for me, it, it was also about modeling that ability to be 
vulnerable and and to to connect with people that we often work towards in therapy as well and about being transparent and being myself as a whole person um so whilst I've very much kept the focus of my work on the person in front of me and not on me I did try to model just just a little bit of that um and I I think it worked pretty well um I still really miss being a clinician I still really you know there's nothing like being able to bear witness to someone's experiences and help them to figure out who they want to be and how they want to live their life um so I do really miss that work um, and I really miss the, the connections that I form in doing that work. Um, but also find what I'm doing now really satisfying too because I'm um, looking at how mental health systems need to be to provide the best possible care to people. So even though I can't support people directly anymore, I can support the people who support them and um, from a systems perspective, which I really like. That's amazing, Kara. I, I was just thinking, you, I, was, I was going to ask a question as you were speaking about sort of the meaning and the purpose that um, I suppose it's your, your vocation infuses in, in, in how you move forward in life. Because I think, you know, the, the way you speak about your work is, 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 is so layered and, it, and it's so complex and, it, and, and you, you give everything you've got until you physically and emotionally can't, can't be there. Um, and then my question was going to be the, the absence of it. Cause I remember last time we spoke, you were, I can't remember you were either had just stopped. You'd just stopped practicing and then you've obviously gone in again. So you've, it's very, very much mimics your, um, your, your health battle, your, your, your journey, the in and out nature of, of your life. But I'm interested in what, what, what's the, the meanings behind your, your work? What, what, what does it give you? Does it, is it something to, to, to grasp onto or, or how do you see that? It absolutely is. Um, for me, I think being, being a mental health professional, being a psychologist, I'm also a counsellor and rehabilitation counsellor. Um, for me, all of that is actually really important to my sense of self. And it, it's not, it's not just about, you know, going to work and, you know, seeing people and just feeling like I'm helping someone. <laughs> to being a psychologist is a bit deeper than that. It's very much about wanting to create a better world. And part of that is about understanding the world. Um, it's about um, reflecting on how, how do we make a better world and then by by doing the things to make that to to achieve a better world, and there's there's so many ways that that people do that. Um, for me, I, I decided on psychology because I'm really sciencey, and psychology is really sciencey. So I felt that um, you know the, the scientist practitioner focus was really suitable for me. Um, I also find people's minds really fascinating and I think that to change the world you need to be able to change people, um, which is probably why I didn't um, land in something like medicine, which I also considered and I also thought about law when I was in, in high school and social work. Um, but for me, I, I felt that really understanding people 
needed to be the foundation for me being able to understand the world. And what I've found in being a psychologist is that's actually been really very much the case. Um, you know, it, it's it's given me so many tools to think about the world, to think about myself, to think about how do we how do we make things better. Um, and I've also been really lucky in my career because I've had um, a lot of a lot of my time has been spent with social workers as well. And so I've had a lot of exposure to, um, you know, to social justice and to thinking about systems and how do we how do we change the different parts of a system to make the world better. Um, and so I, I've soaked up that knowledge as well, even though I'm not a social worker. Um, I'm always very complimented when my beautiful team of social workers who I worked with for many years have told me that Kira. You've got the head of a psychologist, but we feel you've got the heart of a social worker. So I get to, to celebrate Social Worker Day with them. Um, and, yeah, and what that's meant for me is that um, since we've spoken, I haven't done clinical work. I decided that with my cancer, with Evan syndrome, it was just too much to go back to doing what I was doing Um physically and, and mentally. So that's when I made the, the shift into um, more sort of policy and quality assurance stuff. Um, but because for me, the underlying values about being a psychologist in the first place were actually not, not so much about, you know, I really love individuals, although I do, um, but the values were about finding ways to leave a world that's a bit better than the way I found it. And so having to leave clinical work, whilst I really miss it, I really miss connecting, I really miss just how beautiful it is to see people blossom um, and how much of a privilege it is to bear witness to people's pain as well. And, um, you know, what a delight it is to have some power and some systems to be able to, you know, make that angry phone call about this needs to change. This is not good enough. You're putting my client at risk with, you know, my very angry professional hat on. Um, those aren't the reasons um, why I, I did psychology. It was really about making the world better. And so now I'm doing that in a different way. And that means that I can still feel deeply satisfied by what I do and still really enjoy it. Um, mm. So it's, it's been good. It's been good. Um, I love what you said there, Kira, about like making you, you change the world by um, making individuals have better lives. And I wonder what you've seen over your years around any themes um, of what makes a good life for an individual. Yes, I have seen lots of themes about how to make a good life. Um, Interestingly, I think a lot of the factors that create good lives are systemic. Um, you know, I, I often think about how if I won a million dollars, I wouldn't spend it on founding a therapy service. I would spend it on fixing homelessness. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, because it so much is about systems. And I think that the conclusion I've come to is that our connections with others do really sustain us and they are really important and they they provide a, a soft landing when we experience really difficult things. Um, 
And at the same time, so many of the ingredients that help us be resilient aren't about us. They're about our communities. They're about our society. Um, you know, I, I know for me um, personally, and also something I've seen in clients is that when I'm scared about whether I can pay my rent or not, uh, you, you can probably imagine that, that that makes me feel quite anxious and worried about the world. Um, or angry or distressed and all of those things, um, you know, undermine our ability to lead good lives. Um, so I think for me, I've really landed on that the solution needs to be systemic as well as individuals. Um, and I've been living that belief through some activism that I've been doing. Um, part of, of being terminally ill has been thinking about voluntary assisted dying, which I know I mentioned thinking about for myself when I didn't know if I was going to live and life felt like torture. Um, I've kind of fallen into doing activism around voluntary assisted dying legislation in Australia. Um, I have quite strong views that people have the right to make choices about their lives. And if someone is approaching death, I feel that people should have the right to go out on their own terms if death's inevitable and near. Um, and so I've done a lot of campaigning for voluntary assisted dying first in Tasmania and we got the law there. Um, yeah, and congratulations, in, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And then we got it in South Australia. Wow, that's um, amazing, yeah. Yeah, and then we got the law in Queensland. <laughs> And wow. um, actually, Australia, Victoria was the first, and then Western Australia. So they they they'd solved their campaigns. I've probably signed petitions that haven't been heavily involved, but um, you know, when I thought about well, how can I influence the system? I thought about how I could use myself and my experiences to do that. So I thought, gosh, well, if we think about why people are against it, they often worry about um, you know older people being um, exploited, I'm like, well, I'm not old. Um, they fear that um, people just want BAD because they're, you know, depressed and miserable and but it's also, I'm, like, I'm not depressed. <laughs> I, I'm doing pretty good. Even when I was in hospital, I still wouldn't have described myself as depressed even though I was being tortured, like, you know, pretty resilient and have robustly good mental health. Um, yeah, wow. And that's amazing. Yeah. It, to me that you wouldn't um describe yourself as depressed when you're in that state no, yeah wasn't really wasn't depressed I was distressed but not depressed yeah there's a difference um, yeah yeah there is there yeah. really is and and you know when I was younger I experienced depression I know what that feels like mm. as well as you know knowing diagnostic criteria and all of that mm. um, yeah distressed not depressed mm. um yeah and I thought oh gosh and I'm a psychologist and then I thought well you know, one of the, the big fears about BAD is that it's the same as suicide. And so by legalising BAD, is that the same thing as, as suggesting to people that suicide's an answer when they're in distress? Um, and me being a nerdy psychologist, thought, well, you know, I really want to explore that and to understand if that's the case, because obviously I really value life and have worked very hard to present, prevent suicides for many years. So I hit the journals, I looked at the research, I looked at um, 
the evidence from families about grieving after people have accessed BAD versus if they've died by suicide. For example, family who are bereaved by suicide, um, you know, as most people who, who work around suicide know, are at higher risk of suicide themselves. They're much more likely to experience really um, particularly painful grief and, and complex grief. Um, whereas when someone loses a family member who has accessed voluntary assisted dying, um, what that tends to result in for, for the family who's left behind is actually usually a more straightforward grieving process. Um, people have often been able to process what's happening while the person's still there with them. So families can often grieve together. Um, and then the actual process of, of VAD when people access it often means that family can be prepared. Um, you know, they can know what needs to happen. And when you contrast that with the fact that in people who are terminally ill, there are actually quite high suicide rates, it's really scary and shocking. So when people receive a terminal diagnosis, they're much more likely to die by suicide. And that's quite different to VAD. When they die by suicide, it's something that happens generally in secret because it's not, it's not safe for people who are dying to let their family members know um, that they're ready for an end because then their family members can end up, you know, convicted of murder. <laughs> um, and, you know, that, that's a horrible legacy to leave. And um, but what it means is that people who are terminally ill and are, are ready to go because their life is torture and there's no hope that it will ever change um, often die in secret and that leaves family behind who are incredibly distressed and in despair um you know just just as an example it's been in the news recently here in South Australia there there was a, a very loving couple who were quite elderly and both died recently in the news it's been termed a murder suicide um and people who support VAD tend to see that as, as showing why. Because, you know, whatever, whatever the details, there are people who, when they receive a terminal diagnosis, when their quality of life is diminishing and you know that it's just going to get lower and lower and lower and lower and people want some control and want to go on their own terms, some people will die by suicide. And sometimes, you know, a, a partner might, um, might want to help because they see the suffering in their spouse. And then you end up with murder suicides. And it's just, it's awful and it's heartbreaking and horrific and it should never happen. There needs to be a better option. Um, you know, I, I know for me that if, if I didn't have access to VAD and existing was torture, I would just continue to exist and be tortured. My family would have to watch me die horribly. And I can tell you my family are incredibly traumatised 
by having witnessed what they've had to witness so far. My husband has pretty significant PTSD symptoms. My mum's traumatised. My friends are traumatised. It's, it's just horrific. I wouldn't wish it on anyone to have to witness someone they love as sick as I was. Um, and, you, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not okay. It's horrible for the person going through it to feel that there's no control. There's nothing but death and torture awaiting. Um, you know, and so for me, I would do that and force my family to watch because I wouldn't want, um, you know, I wouldn't want my husband to have his last memories of me of killing me or being around or of me dying somewhere in absence because I've chosen, um, you know, chosen to end my life um, without implicating him. Um, I wouldn't risk you know, my mum ever being implicated because not only would she potentially be up on murder charges, she'd lose her career as a nurse. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't ask and help. I couldn't, couldn't do anything in private because of the trauma that that would create. Um, so I'd just be stuck in a bed, shitting and vomiting, unable to breathe, having panic attacks, in agony that is not relieved by any medication until I die. And that's not, that's not a way to die. And palliative care for most people is pretty effective. So most people wouldn't have the horrible experiences that I've had as they're, they're dying. Um, you know, there's really good medications. So things like, you know, morphine pumps and that sort of thing that can really help. And when people are palliated, they're mostly unconscious and not feeling things, but that actually doesn't happen for everyone. And so when there's someone where that's not working, what do we do? Do we just let them die in agony? <laughs> Um, is that is that the right thing to do? And many doctors would say it is. Um, you know that doctors are actually really split about VAD. Um, there's some who see supporting VAD as a form of murder and is really unprofessional. The AMA is flat out against VAD. Um, but I feel that, that some of that thinking is about that idea of what does it mean to be a doctor? You know, if I'm, if I'm yeah. supporting a patient at the end of life, wanting to end their life, what does that mean for me as a doctor? Does that yeah. make me a value? Because my goal is to help extend life, not end it. Um, you know, for me, I'd flip that on, on, on its head and go, well, okay, but it's not about you, doctor. Yeah. Yeah, and the the values around uh, being a productive doctor who uh, who has the right skills to keep anyone alive, um, and sort of not recognizing our, our limits of human skill and expertise. Um, I totally, yeah. I I guess I'm wondering as well though, um, Kira, because you said that at the start of the podcast that when you were in the earlier stages. Um, of your diagnoses you didn't have access to VAD and you made a comment to your mum that if if you did have access you would have you would have looked into it um so tell tell us more about that because that that must have been a a real dark place Yeah, yeah that 
that was when um about a year ago when I was in hospital critically yeah. unwell um I was in multiple organ failure they told me I wasn't going to make it out of hospital um and I was essentially living a very tortured non-existence in in hospital um even then um what I actually said to my mum was that if I thought that there was no hope that things would get better that things would improve if this would be my existence until I died then I'd access VAD and um, I think I mentioned I did have that little brief tiny glimmer of hope um, that meant you know even with VAD implemented um, I wouldn't have accessed it at the time because I still just had that little bit of hope that maybe things will change um, for me it would be when there isn't anything left that that could be done that it would be really important and you know I I don't know if I'll access VAD. Um, my hope is that by the time I go, it will be implemented here in South Australia. It's legislated but not implemented yet. And um, the implementation's going more slowly here than in any other state in the country, which um, myself and other activists are uh, not very impressed by. Um, there's not been a lot of communication about it. Um, training hasn't been offered, that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I'll need VAD. It'll really depend on how I'm going. Um, it'll depend on my quality of life. Um, it'll depend on if palliation works for me. For most people, it will. So there's probably a better chance of me not accessing VAD than me accessing it. But goodness, I want the choice. And Kira, just just to slowly sort of move back towards the um, the aspect of that glimpse of hope or that 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 gap that allowed you to hold on to that hope what 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 about like where did that come from because obviously you were you were you, you you've ex- you've basically described it as, as torture and you've spoken about you know the what ifs what where do you think that comes from um I think for me, it came from the fact that none of us knew why what was happening in my body was happening, Mm. Um, you know, and so when there's, you know, when there's enormous uncertainty, I think there's also room for hope. Um, You know, we we didn't know why all my organs were fouling. We didn't know I had high fevers and uh, lungs that weren't functioning. Um, And because we didn't know why, and we didn't know which treatment might work. Um, on the one hand, that was quite scary because generally speaking, people like the idea of medical answers being available. Um, but for me, I, I didn't I didn't really find it that scary, I think, because for me, uncertainty, you know, it, it's the other side of the coin to hope a lot of the time. Um, you know, if there's infinite possibility, yes, the outcomes could be terrible, but they could also be really good. Um, so it was just that that uncertainty for me was a real driver of hope. Mm. So an element, of, almost like an element of freedom, you know, knowing that anything could happen and what could happen is you you could move, you could go onward with life. Um, 
And but that's it. I, I just find it such a like I'm I'm in awe listening to that because uh, you think about holding both of those sides of of the coin. You know that despair of going into the oblivion potentially and not knowing what's next, but then also holding this sort of unbridled hope that um, something may occur that, that that you have no real reason to believe will. Um, it's such a it's. It, um, the hearing you, uh, yeah, it's um, and also it's such a it's so opposite to the way like people think when they're not held down by looking at death. Like we people want certainty <laughs> in everything they do and all their decisions mm-hmm. and all their routines, and they they want to know like exactly like when they'll you know have kids and and you know they'll want to have predictability over everything that their kids do and all that and worry and anxiety and and that's like wanting that certainty and that's the opposite for you is like it gave you hope to not have any (laughs) any of that yeah yeah absolutely and and over years um you know, the, the neurobiologist Dan Siegel, um, who's a doctor, has talked about that as well, that idea that that with uncertainty, with not knowing, you know, there, there is room for hope, there's room for joy, Where whereas for me, I think if, if they'd said that I'm definitely going to die, that, um, you know, every treatment's been exhausted, um, you know, there, there might not be the same room for hope. I, I don't know because for me that even though we were all pretty sure I was going to die, me included, um, you know, there was still that little bit of room for uncertainty. So I do wonder how I'll feel when ultimately, you know, I, I, know, I know my fate is an early death um, and it's that's not a fate I can avoid. Um, so I don't know what will happen when I'm closer the next time. Um you know, another exciting thing about today is that I've just been discharged from the, the palliative care nurse um, that I was seeing because death death keeps on receding. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's quite quite exciting. She she was very pleased because you know, yeah, as you can imagine, they don't typically get patients who <laughs> yeah. discharge. From yeah, care. that would be so rare for them to have a discharge. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And a live yeah, discharge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. Usually the discharges because they're not around for a discharge. Yeah. So uh, she, she was very pleased to be able to discharge me. Wow. Um, yeah. And so I don't know, like I, I sort of joked with her. I'm like, oh, you know, I know I'll see you again, you know, if I'm, and I sort of said, you know, if I manage to survive the next relapse. Um, and that wasn't, you know, not a negative thing for me. It's just the reality, like, um, you know, because my relapse has come so out of the blue, I never know if I'm going to relapse at any given moment. Like on Monday I went um, I went and had some of my cancer treatments and, you know, when they do that, they do your observations and my pulse was a bit high. For me, my pulse being a bit high can mean that my body is killing off my blood cells and my heart's working harder to try to move less blood around my body so I get oxygen. 
So I haven't had any panicked phone calls. So I'm assuming that's not been the case this time. I might have just been, you know, biting off a cold. That can do it too. Um, but there's always that uncertainty for me. And so living with that, um, you know, it, it does have its challenges because humans like certainty. Um, but for me, I, I do find that it's really helpful to keep thinking about the fact that, well, with infinite uncertainty also comes infinite possibility. Yeah, I mean, that's a yeah beautiful, beautiful way to, but, I mean, it, it just amazes me, like all of these ways that you see the world that um, I don't know if you had them in you before you got sick or whether they were a product of getting sick that you developed these <laughs> ways of... A lot of it was always there, I, I yeah. think. Like for me, getting sick is kind of, oh, it, it's just it's just highlighted what was already there. Like I, I sort of always felt the same way about pursuing my values and living a meaningful life. Um, but now when I talk about it, I'm like, ha-ha, and I know from lived experience <laughs> rather yeah. than just, you know, about it more theoretically. So it's just kind of underlined what was already there, I think. Yeah. And, and I've got a sort of one more question. Well, I've got a lot of questions, but it'll take, it'll take a lot longer than an hour. But I, being, being closer to death, Kira, has that, has that, I think I'm not sure if I asked you this last time, but it's something that I thought about. And when I when I knew you sort of you were coming on again, is is there a sense of rush with um, with life? Is there a sense of um, I know you mentioned that you've if your time was was um, was complete, if it was going to, going to be vanquished, that you would be satisfied with what you've done. So. It, it, do you feel an ex? Do you feel like you, you're living an ex, extra time? Or you, do you, you feel that um, you know death is sort of uh, it's you know it's it's a race. It's it's almost it's a race to uh, make use of that extra time you've got, or um, do you experience it differently? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because, in a way, I do feel that you know, an acute awareness that the time I have left on the earth is limited. And I do feel a desire to spend the time that I have in a way that's meaningful and worthwhile. Um, on the other hand, I also feel that it's really important to be compassionate to myself. And so if I'm having a day where you know, I'm tired or I want to rest or I just don't feel like doing stuff. Um, I, I think it's really important for me to, to respect that and to have compassion for myself as someone who's quite exhausted. And of course, you know, I still have the ongoing effects of having been so ill. I still, um, you know, I still tend to not be up and out of bed and moving before about 11 o'clock in the morning because I'm just exhausted every morning. Um, and it's important to me not to beat myself up about that. I would see doing so as really ableist, you know, that idea that I'm only worthwhile if I'm doing something. So true. Um, yeah. It's just, yeah, for me, that's just not the case. And it's something to be fought and combated because it's horrible, toxic thinking. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because on the one hand, I do like to do things that I find really meaningful. And then on the other hand, the other thing I find really meaningful is, self-compassion um 
and allowing myself to just be and you know not to make every day count and live every day like it's your last even though for me you know that's that's genuinely true um you know living every day like it's my last might mean one day I just you know stay in bed because I'm a bit tired or you know I I might have a coffee at home or just quietly read a nice novel because reading novels gives me joy and that's okay it's okay to stop and to rest and to relax and um you know to, to just be as well so it's it's really interesting because sometimes for me those two sides of me the part that really likes to get out and go and do stuff and um you know really gets a lot out of being quite active in in lots of ways um you know that there is the tension between that and that sort of quieter stiller part of myself that says well actually let's just be Mm. that's such a powerful message for for anyone listening is is that that, that ability to stop even even because you would you, you know given your your the what your existence and your the knowledge of your you know impending early death that, that this is something that stopping you would think that because stopping generally for for people that is is quite a can be quite a destructive thing it's such an important thing to sit with yourself and be with yourself in in in, in, a, in a quiet space but what that opens up for some people are some of those thoughts about not being productive not being good enough and you get entrenched in that cycle so i just think it's so powerful for someone who's living this to be able to express that because um listening to me you know me listening to you sort of say that i'm just sort of it makes me feel connected to to something you know greater than just trying to sort of move forward in life it, it is sometimes about just existing where you're at you know mm. and um that's all we can do sometimes and that's and that's got to be good enough that's got to be that's got to be okay yeah. and it is good enough and and something i think about with that as well is it is the implications around what it means to be human if the only way to be a full good whole human is to be productive <laughs> like what are we cogs in 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 a machine um, you know, is that what it means to be a good human? Because uh, I, I, I don't tend to think it is. I think just being is, is enough, um, you know, and, and it's something that lots of people struggle with, that idea that if I'm not productive, if I don't meet this milestone, if I'm not, you know, married by this age and a house and a, a job and, a, and not just any job, it has to be a career because, you know, that, that's what matters. Um, and it's got to be full time and I have to be really busy and I have to brag about being really busy. And, and um, then on top of that, I have to work out because, you know, otherwise I'm really terrible. Um, you know, all of that, it's, it's, it's exhausting just thinking about it. And it's, it's not, that's, that's not the recipe for a good life. It's a recipe for exhaustion and burnout. Um, and, you know, for some people, keeping really busy, really active might be what they need. Um, and that's great for them. And for other people, being able to sit with your own emotions and your own existence and discomforts and fears and being able to process them instead of running away from them by engaging in every possible activity you can think of is actually really important. Um, and then for other people, just, just being, you know, being tired, 
being disabled. Yeah. Um, that's that's important and valid and and you know that that idea that you have to be a certain way or have a certain level of pr- productivity to be good enough um is something that i see as really problematic in our culture yeah i totally i mean it's it's so funny how far we've disconnected from what it actually means to just exist as uh, in the way that any other animal would just exist and it's only a recent thing, isn't it? With industrialization and what followed that. And then it's, um, yeah, I think this is such a message for everyone that like being has value like in itself. We'll stop. Yeah, that's yeah, we'll it. Stop. Like embra- yeah. embracing just being and yeah, that's um, that's probably what actual living is, it really comes down to at the end of the day when you take away all the all the avoidance factors that you could bring in. So yeah, that's um, it's a beautiful note to sort of wrap up on. Um, Kira, was there anything else that um, you know any any other uh, comments or anything you wanted to share? I'm oh, sorry, I've kind of put you on the spot, but just before we wrap <laughs> up, okay. I'm sure we'll do another yeah. episode, but was there anything else? Yeah, I, I would really like people to reflect on some of the things we've talked about today, about the idea that um, the things around us and the systems around us are actually mm. really important to our well-being, and it's not just an individual responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd like people to think about that idea that it's okay to still be still, it's okay to stop and that your worth is not tied to your financial value or your productivity. Mm. Um, and then it's okay to just be and to think about the things that matter to you and um, to sit with whatever that might be as well sometimes. Beautiful. I love that. Beautiful. Getting the listeners to reflect. It's yes. about time. Yeah. <laughs> that was making sense of chaos as always we would love to hear your thoughts send us a dm a voice message on instagram at making sense of chaos or one word or on twitter at msoc underscore pod thanks and we'll see you next time